Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 322, and I had a conversation with David Richman. David's sister died of brain cancer, and he's written a book called Cycles of Life, 15 People's Stories, 5,000 Miles, and a Journey Through the Emotional Chaos of Cancer. He interviewed 15 people across the United States whose lives had also been irrevocably changed by cancer, either as patients, survivors, loved ones, or caregivers. It was a powerful conversation and inspiring, and I cannot wait for you to hear it. Friend of the podcast, Vince, suggested that I recommend other episodes that are around this same topic. Check out episode 257, Barbara Kaplan Bennett, The Cut is the Cure. Episode 256, Ben Ewing, Into That Good Night. Episode 248, Dr. Chris Kerr, Translating the Mystery of Death. Episode 185, Dr. Cammie Fletcher, Home Going and Death as Resistance. And episode 83, Dr. Donnie Stedman, Let the Truth of Our Bones Tell Our Stories. There is a trigger warning on this episode because we obviously we talk about death and we talk about suicide and trauma and PTSD. And so I just want y'all to be aware of that for this episode. In other news, check out heyhumanpodcast.com to learn more about my guests and the show, susanruth.com to learn more about me, and please follow Susan Ruthism and Hey Human Podcast on social media. And check out my new relationships and sex show with sexologist and healthcare practitioner Mara Edelman. It's on YouTube, and it's called Are We There Yet? You can find it at youtube.com slash are we there yet podcast show. Thanks for listening, everybody. Stay safe, be well, be kind. And with the understanding that none of us know when our last day will be, please be love. All right, here we go. Hi. Oh my goodness. Hi, nice to meet you. How's it going? Good. Are you hiding in your closet like me? I am. I uh, When I moved to this new place, it's just a little attic. It's an attic converted into an apartment on a house, and uh, it doesn't have its own little podcast room, so I just sit in my closet and throw up a blanket. That's fantastic. Well, I'm in my closet as well. Yeah, it works. Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of rooms in the house, but there's a lot of people running around, and it's just, this is the quietest one, plus it's carpeted and with all these clothes. It just mm-hmm. works. It makes a huge difference. It's bigger than the room I grew up in. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I just throw the the blanket up and call it good. Whatever. So great. I love it. The bare bones. (laughs) Try to keep those costs down, right? (laughs) I know. Well, yeah, building a studio is kind of not cheap. And I'm sure like the cost of just doing the podcast itself is not cheap. It's not. It's not. But you know, it's a labor of love. Yeah. And it's 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 like writing books, you know. I mean they're 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 not money makers even though all the profit all the money that comes in goes to charity it's still not a ton yeah compared to the costs of printing and shipping and all of that other stuff so yeah i feel like when one decides they're going to create something that's for the world and not for themselves they they have to sort of let go of the idea that it will be a money maker but it's more about the energy of it the action of it the yeah. legacy, what it leaves behind, how it makes people think and feel. Yeah. yeah. I have now a team of three people working with me. And the third one, she's just now listening to the audible of this latest book. And she's like, oh, my God, you didn't tell me it was good. And I said, well, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you didn't so tell nice. me I came to work for somebody that actually knows what they're doing. Exactly. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. She goes, That's that right. last one of the stories, she goes, I'm up to, I think she said she's up to Terry. And she goes, she goes, and, and, and Terry's story almost made me cry. Aww. I said, Oh, yeah. Well, uh, it'll be. I love it. Well, we're going to get into all of that. Firstly, David Richmond, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you. I totally appreciate that, Susan. Thank you. I love the opportunity. I have a mother-in-law who sometimes is very direct 
And she goes, so you, you go on all these podcasts. You talk about the same thing every time. Don't you get bored? I go, well, I kind of don't talk about the same thing every time, but even if I did, no, I wouldn't get bored. This is a, this is like a, a passion I was drawn to and I love it. And no, it's not, it's not tiring at all. It's not busy. I'm never too busy. I love it. And it's a great opportunity. And I, and I love the stories that you bring. And I, the title is just so grabbing you, you know, Hey human. I love that. Thank you very much. I appreciate yeah. that. And I mean, to be fair, every time any of us get interviewed, the person is going to ask different questions. It'll it'll lead down different trains of thought. Yeah, so, you know, it varies. I guess the core of things are the same, but it's not it's not completely drill. No, and I'm not I'm not trying to like be self-serving and talking to people. I really I really have a passion for what I think this project is doing for people and I kind of don't lose sight of that because I oftentimes Susan will get like an email from someone or um you know a note on a DM on a on a social app or something that'll be like hey I've been a you know I've been an oncologist for 20 years I never knew what my patients were going through mm. or I'm a critical care nurse I had no idea or my grandmother just died and I didn't know what to say to my grandfather my gosh your book just totally helped me and and I love that so um so what I set out to do with the book was to help kind of help people guide them to, to start hard conversations around trauma. And that's what the book is doing. So why wouldn't I want to talk to everybody about it? Cause mm -hmm. it might help them because who doesn't experience trauma. And it is interesting and frustrating. The disconnect sometimes between healthcare providers and patients and also patients sometimes inability to advocate for themselves and speak up for themselves either out of fear of sounding stupid or not knowing something or feeling intimidated by just the experience at large and they're already coming to the table mm -hmm. with a certain amount of trauma illness trauma yeah. or what it all means or life and death trauma or who knows what else is going on around and then stick them into a situation where they have to be their own voice advocate for themselves, understand research, understand medicine, understand whatever ailment is afflicting them. That's a lot to ask. It, it is. And that's a very important dynamic and perspective in the healthcare world, right? That doctor patient thing and how difficult it is to navigate. But I, I'll go a step further and say that, you know, we're all humans. And how about how difficult it is for some doctors, you know, to, to go, I mean, I had this uh, one of the stories in the book is a is a forty year oncologist, and um, I sp started speaking to her because I caught her at the right time in her life where she said, "I'm really grappling with when people don't take my advice or don't want mm -hmm. to follow my care. I, it's really." really hard for me because I've lived such a full, wonderful life. And I know I'm good at what I do. I know I can make their cancer journey better. And if they don't follow my advice, I can't see them. It's really painful because I know what I'm doing and I can help them. And when they say, oh, well, I'll go try this or I'll go try that first. She goes, I, I think to myself what they might lose out on. And she said, I don't think people understand how difficult it is for me to walk from my uh, um, um, examination room one, where I've got a young mother with two kids who won't take my advice. And I know if she did, she's probably going to be cured. And if not, at least, you know, her life is going to be lengthened and enhanced. And I know I can do this. And she says, no, I'm going to go try a bunch of other things. And I got to walk out of patient room one and walk into exam room two you know, two, two steps away. And I got a young woman with two ki kids in there and, and I'm talking to her about end of life issues. She goes, this is really hard. Like it's hard to deal with. So she's desperate for people to take her care. And it's like, it really makes you sit back and say, well, maybe I should ask my doctor how I'm doing, how, how they're doing rather. Mm -hmm. And, and how about also, you don't know what the doctor's going through. You just don't know what they're going through, not on an emotional level, physical, financially, you have no idea what they're going through. So everybody's got it tough. And, and, and I think what around, especially around traumatic things like cancer, um, you just, you, I, what I learned this project, you, you just don't know what people are going through. You just don't know. Every, everybody's going through something or has gone through something. Mm -hmm. And we just don't often give ourselves a chance to find out and listen and, you know, kind of feel them. 
and and um yeah so that's i mean there's a lot of dynamics you picked on a good one for sure the doctors and surgeons that i know personally have a lot of stress they're they're definitely pushed to the limits and they're frustrated with the healthcare system as well mm-hmm. because they're fighting insurance companies who are pretending to be doctors who yep. are making calls and denying service and denying claims and playing with people's lives and that has to be so frustrating yeah it is and and that's a great point as well susan i i uh, found and and spoke to um a chief medical officer for a for a major health plan and talked to him about his perspective from the corporate world like you know how how does a big health plan deal with the emotional side of the care and the trauma and i and i love this guy's story because he's you know one generation away from being a farm worker and um you know without giving everything away he he found himself um out of a horrible marriage he had a he had a special needs kid um very very difficult financial situation and he was uh, digging in his couch for change um you know and and and, and to get enough gas to go pick up his paycheck so he can put a food on the table and and so when he says he is really aware of the little guy and really wants to help people. He really means it because he's he feels it. He's that close to it. And here he is, this major executive now at a major company, right? But he still thinks like, no, every single person that I know could be one or two bad situations from having to dig for change to put gas in their car to go pick up a paycheck. And he's like, I I recognize that. I was that person. And so it's it's so wonderful to hear that there can be compassion and there can be humans behind some of these really really cold callous difficult um, avenues we got to walk through in the healthcare industry. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's get into you. Tell me about your upbringing and your family life as a kid. <laughs> Where are you from? How did you grow up? Sure. So I grew up in the San Fernando Valley uh, area of Los Angeles. I had an interesting dynamic as a kid. Um, my mom was way too young to have kids. Uh, she was 21 when I was born and definitely did not want kids. Uh, my sister was a little bit older than me, so she was even younger when my sister was born. Uh, my dad, on the other hand, was way too old to have kids. He was 59 when I was born. Yeah, big age difference. So, you know, nearly a 40 years age difference between them. And so, how in the world created- did they meet? Uh, my dad was a entrepreneur, big, ran a big business, uh, you know, like self-made guy, very suave and debonair. I just, I, I just think, you know, she was running away and he was a place to land and, you know, it was just the times, you know, the, the, the 1960, you know, the young receptionist or whatever. I don't even really know everything behind it, but, um, yeah, I don't know. 56 and 18 when they got married. I don't I don't know. It's a little wacky. So uh so my sister and I kind of leaned on each other growing up because we had one parent that really was too old to take care of us and the other parent that really didn't want to take care of us. So um we we leaned into each other. Um at 18, I left home and uh, embarked on the world on my own. Didn't make it very far. My car broke down in Vegas and I got uh robbed at gunpoint of everything that I had didn't have anybody to call, didn't have any money, kind of lived in my car for a while and kind of figured it out from there. Um, geez, it's a long story, but I went from one job to another to another. Eventually, ne- never having gone to college, I was running a hundred plus million in revenue business for a major Wall Street firm and kind of had my life together. But I was also pretty emotionally, psychologically damaged, um, maybe self-imposed, self-inflicted some of it, um, but not really wise to the world and found myself um, very comfortable in digging holes so that I could figure out a way out of them or finding relationships with people that were wrecked so that I could fix them um, and never worrying about my own stuff, you know? So um, I found myself in my mid thirties, Susan, overweight. I was a super heavy smoker. I was married to uh, an abusive alcoholic. I had four-year-old twins and I was at just like the lowest point that I could be 
you know, relative to the rest of my life, which was going well, but I was just on a path to, to destruction. And my sister called me up at that time and said, Hey, I've been diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. And I went, Oh my gosh. And at the same time, I kind of had somebody explain to me that all these problems I was having in my life, it wasn't the problem. It was me. I was the problem. He's like, dude, you got to fix your own problems and not just complain about how bad everybody is or how bad your wife is or how hard it is or whatever, like work on your own problems. So at the same moment in time, I'm at this low point. Then I get some perspective hearing that my sister's going to die. And then I get some other perspective. I just heard the right words at the right time when somebody kind of convinced me like, dude, you got to look in the mirror and figure your shit out and stop, like, stop trying to fix the world that you can't fix. Like you got to fix yourself because you're totally broken. And I'm like, whoa. So that's a long answer to my background, but that's kind of the starting point for, I think, what transformed me into the person I am today. I'm curious how you went from living in your car to having that career path, because that seems like a mighty transition. (laughs) (gasps) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Well, you don't have anybody to call. You don't have any money. I mean, what are you going to do? Right. I I literally didn't have anywhere. I didn't know what the heck to do. I I didn't know. So um, the last job that I had had before I left was um, at a, at a restaurant. Previous to that, I worked at a at a fast food joint, and I walked into a fast food joint. It probably looked like crap, and I said, "You know, hey, I'd like to apply for a job." And I think the manager kind of laughed at me, and I said, "No, no, 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 like, like really, I'd like to apply for a job. You, here's the name and number of my old boss. If they're still working, they'll tell you I'm a good person and whatever. I just got robbed. I got nobody to call. I'm out on my own." So they kind of rolled their eyes, but this was back in, you know, a time when maybe they would have believed you and not looked at me as some kind of you know, like, you know, drug addicted, homeless punk or something. And so, um, yeah, they made a phone call and said, Oh, God, so-and-so vouch for you. I guess you are a good guy. So come on in and we'll, we'll give you a try. So yeah, I worked at Jack in the box and then I worked at a hotel in Vegas and then I worked at a restaurant and then I'm like, I just constantly learned how to manage and how to survive and how to work harder than the next person. And cause I had to, you know, had to. And so one thing led to another, to another. And every time that I got into a new industry, I was the least qualified to be in that industry. So I tried to work like 10 times as hard as everyone to prove that I could be the best person in the room, which always led to other opportunities. But I, I, I always walked into a room going, okay, I got to be smarter and harder working than the other 99 people there because I'm the fraud. And so, you know, so, so basically that's what I did that, that landed me at, you know, one job after another, that was a better job. And eventually I'm, you know, this big executive, well, medium level executive at a big firm. And, uh, you know, I'm still the only guy in the room without the college degree and working twice as hard as everyone. Cause I think I'm a fraud, you know, <laughs> did you have substance abuse issues at all? Or did you manage no, to? no. No, no substance abuse issues. Um, di- didn't whatever. It's just I, I never, I, I, I kind of like started making money working harder rather than um, thinking uh, along a path of like if I go to school, I'm going to have to build this resume. I'm going to have this education, and I'm going to go along these steps or whatever. I just, I, it just fell into work first of all because I had to. And then I'd work double shifts and then I would get two jobs and I get three jobs and I, you know, I'd work 20 hours a day because I had to. Was there a fostering of relationship between you and your parents given, I know that you and your sister were quite tight, but did, did your parents Mm -hmm. ever come around? No. So, um, my mom and I, um, I think she was quietly glad that I left at 18 because basically 40 years later, nearly i have not had not really heard from her ever again um so that's a whole whole nother situation i i you know i can just chalk it up to some people just doesn't want kids you know i mean what are you gonna do um at the time you know times in my life i've I've, kind of like been like who who has a kid and then just doesn't care but ah, some people just don't care right like don't you run into some people susan where you're like why is that person so angry? Some people are just angry. I mean, yeah, yeah. there's no rhyme or reason to it. They just are. 
Some people yeah. are bad people, right? Some people are good people. More people are good people than than are bad. I agree. Um, and my dad, uh, he he died when I was pretty young, in my very early twenties. But at that time, uh, he's just really too old to really understand what was going on. He he was an old like you know like an old eighty, you know, and 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 had some issues, had some medical issues. I I just think he just didn't really know how to deal with a kid. I certainly didn't know how to deal with an old parent. And, um, so I just, I just found my way in the world by myself and that created a lot of problems because I hadn't had guidance. Mm -hmm. I didn't have support. I didn't have anybody to turn to. I couldn't ask for help or mentorship or no, nobody said, Hey, here's a plan that you should follow in life. Right. Or guide, guide rails to a plan. You should, nothing like that. So it was just, just you know, trial by fire, however they call that, you know? And so that's the thing that I got used to. And I think that I, it, it turned me into somebody who was always looking to get other people's approval mm. and, you know, like prove that I'm the smartest guy in the room or prove that I can handle what other people that were prepared to handle could handle. And, but I wasn't prepared, but I could still be in the room and try to handle it. Um, which, kind of just led to me having a very low self-esteem and low self-care quotient didn't really care about myself really tried hard to care about others or or at least i cared about what they thought but i i didn't care about what i thought and i certainly didn't take care of myself um that that changed when those things i told you uh, happened but yeah there was no there was no mentorship parent you know you know somebody trying to help you along life and and so it was it was really figuring a lot of stuff out by myself how did that light bulb really go off though because i think it's one thing to think okay i need to do better i need to do better for myself for my health and and then doing it that's a whole other story it's a different step yeah yeah you know i think that if if you're fortunate and i was fortunate um if you're fortunate to be able to, and I didn't know it at the time, but I know it since then that if you're fortunate enough to, in my mind, take a three, a three-step process. And that is one, if you're fortunate enough to be at a place in your life where you can, where you can have an honest assessment of yourself. So I think a lot of times people get to a certain age, sometimes it's 15, sometimes it's 35 or whatever, but sometime in that time frame, they get to be, and that's who they are. And they just go, oh, I'm like this because that's who I am. Or I'm like this, that's because who I am. And they kind of become myopic about who they are and like what they could be. And they just kind of settled into life and they become kind of, um, you know, already figured everything out. And I think if you're really fortunate that you can assess where you're at and if you like it and be proud of it, then lean into it. And if you're not, then you can try to change it. But I don't think a lot of us take the opportunity or given the opportunity to take an honest assessment of yourself. And when um, I got the perspective of knowing that my sister, you know, was on a path to death and here I am, you know, at the certain, at the exact same time, kind of opening my eyes to maybe I should start to figure out who I'm going to be in life and who I am. And like, like I see my future ahead of me. And I'm trying to, I'm just at the point where I can say, geez, dude, who's the guy in the mirror? And, and like, who is that person? And who does that person want to be? I'm like, wow, the hell I'm allowed to ask myself these questions. I'm can, can go figure this out. And then against that, you know, my sister's got terminal brain cancer and she's, you know, she's got young family and kids and the whole thing. And she doesn't have that same ability. So gave me that perspective and the ability the opportunity i think to give an assessment and then um i think just by luck i came up with the second step for me which was i just forgave myself i i just let my my brain go and go look dude you, you know what you know now you didn't know it then and and you know what if you want to keep making the same mistakes go ahead but stop like you don't have to keep banging your head against a wall and when you when you stop banging your head against the wall you could just like not feel bad about it cuz you didn't know any better until just now and so for me it was that first thing of taking a real assess, assess a, a real assessment of myself overweight 
smoker, fixing everyone else, not paying attention to myself, you know, kind of chip on my shoulder kind of guy, whatever. And then the, then the second step was, I just said, just let it go. Like, let it all go. Just forgive yourself. Like some of it was your fault. A lot of it wasn't. Don't figure it out. Don't be cynical. Don't have a chip on your shoulder. Don't know the answer to every question. Don't just be what you are. Like be who you want to become and figure it out. Like just let it go. Free your mind. And, and I did. I, I let myself free my mind because what's an overweight smoker uh, doing, you know, going to saying, you know, oh, I'm going to go do an Ironman or something, or I'm going to go do a hundred mile run or, you know, I, I just said, I'm going to go do stuff that's just for me. And it's like, I have to, for, I have to leave my, me in the past, just let it go. So that was, that was, that was step two. Step three for me was just like leaning into learning about myself and about life. And that's kind of like that time in my life just goes like day one for me, you know? Mm. Does that make any sense? It absolutely does. And I love the idea of just deciding to be whomever it is you, you wish to be, and then you will become that just be, because the brain doesn't know the difference. If you're telling the it brain, doesn't. this is who I am, the brain goes, oh, okay, this is who we are. Great. Mm -hmm. Just yeah. like it doesn't know that, you know, when you're watching a scary movie, you're scared because the brain goes, this is scary. doesn't really get the delineation between scary movie and scary real life. Yeah. It still produces the same feelings to some degree. Yeah. And and I, I'm not a big kind of like mantra guy or live by a bunch of quotes and that kind of stuff. I, you know, I don't write a lot, bunch of stuff on yellow stick keys and, you know, recite it while I'm brushing my teeth. I'm not that kind of guy, but there's a couple of, of like movies, like one, one specific quote just st stuck with me in the matrix when, when they're in the fighting scene in the first fighting scene in the matrix and Lawrence Fishburne looks at uh, Keanu Reeves at one point in the fight. And he says, stop trying to hit me and hit me. Like, stop trying to hit me, just hit me. And I'm like, well, well, stop trying to be whatever you're trying to be and just be like, just be. And when I started not trying to be the smartest guy in the room and not trying to work harder than everybody else. And I just was like, I don't care what anybody else thinks, but me now, I don't mean that like in a bad way, like I'm not going to be an a-hole because I don't care what anybody thinks. Right. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying like, don't like when I stopped paying attention to what, cause people weren't giving, they weren't, they weren't giving me the time of day anyway. Well, so I was all made up in my head, right. They were living their own lives, but I'm thinking, Oh, they're going to, you know, I need their approval or they're going to, they're thinking this of me. They're not, they're living their own lives, but it took me a while to learn that. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's a big, that's a big point to get to. And, and I just was fortunate that I found it as early in, in life as I did. That's magical. Yeah. When your sister got her diagnosis and she, it sounds like she was really a lifeline for you. Mm -hmm. That must have created all sorts of emotional uh, roller coaster rides to take. And considering where you were coming from too, because if you're in this place of, I, I need to get better and be better and figure out who I am and where I'm going. And then I'm the, and then right next to you is this person is like, Oh, I see the the last door to walk through. Mm -hmm. It's quite a juxtaposition. It is. And I, I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of people about um, death or being afraid of death or going through very traumatic things. You know, it's, it's all part of what this, pro this project's all about. And I think siblings have something in, especially siblings that are close in age or twins or something like that my sister and i were like uh, uh 16 months apart so we're pretty close and um there's something about si cl siblings close in age that they have the same um history the same perspective they 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 see like they grew up seeing the same things you know if you have a a brother that's 12 years older yeah he's your brother but you, you didn't grow up seen things the same your parents were different people the experiences were different the schools were different there was yeah your your siblings but really close to age siblings kind of have that in common and and i didn't know it early on but i really had to grieve that person from my 
childhood that I felt was pretty traumatic and and pretty injurious. And it was it was really not a fun childhood most of the time. The one person that kind of got that, that that was there with me, that was dealing with the kind of nonsense that I had to deal with, was dealing with it too. That person is going to be gone. And so that's like, wow, man, like when I want to complain about this or that, or I want to you know, commiserate with someone about how difficult it was, you know, to navigate coming home at night when mom said, you know, if you come home before dark, you're in big trouble. And if you come home after dark, you're in big trouble. And it's like, how do you navigate coming home at dark? Like, it's like, oh, you know, like the, the stress and the angst and the, and the abuse that came out of that. And that person's gone, you know? And so, um, you know, I, I think after she died, I, I didn't just grieve her. I, I grieve that, that, you know, the only person that knew that part of my childhood and I knew, you know, cause, cause I knew that about her and her childhood, like that's gone. Like that's it. You're alone. The person that bears witness to your yeah. life. Yeah. I mean, parents do, but it's a different thing, right? Yeah. But they're coming parents from their own perspective. They're, yeah. They don't, they, I, they do bear witness in some regard, but the person who is, especially in houses where abuse is taking place, emotional and or physical or both mm -hmm. that the sibling I would argue it doesn't even matter if they're close in age or not, that the, even though they may be in their own bubble, if they're too far apart, um, that they're still bearing witness. They're still aware mm -hmm. of this thing going on. Yeah. Yeah. But that you and don't I, feel like you're crazy. Am I crazy because this right. is how it felt or am I actually really experiencing this thing? Especially yeah, if you live with a gaslighter, especially yeah. if your parent is gaslighting you the whole time. And, and that's gone, right? And so I, that's a different thing to grieve. And and I, and I totally get that you can't compare one person's grief to another. And everybody's going through something. Everybody's had trauma. And there certainly isn't anything comparable between one person's loss and another, right? It's, right. it's individual to them. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just a matter of what are you grieving and, and what, you know, what, how does it affect you emotionally? And I think for me, the hardest part was of losing her was that I had secretly been so proud of her for coming through our childhood so much better than I had, you know, so much more at peace with herself and who she was. And she had a very functional and wonderful relationship with her husband, you know, very close to her kids, huge circle of friends, you know, very settled into who she was. She knew who she was and she was living her best life. You know, like me, I'm in all this turmoil and I'm carrying around all these, you know, all these problems from my childhood that made me create bigger problems for myself that I carried around as burdens. And I'm just like, uh, I got to figure my life out. She figured out all that ahead of me. Right. And was doing great. And I kind of admired that about her. And even at times even kept my distance from her because I was so happy that she had this beautiful life um, coming from where we came from. And and so it was, it was a little extra, you know, punch to the gut knowing that she was going to have to leave that behind. And her and I talked about that, you know, she was just like, yeah, imagine where we came from and where I'm at. And it just sucks that I'm not going to be able to, you know, see it through. And so, um, you know, that's, that's, that, that was the burden she was carrying near the end of her life. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, everybody has that. Everybody has something they're dealing with. How did she feel about dying so young, especially? Well, she, she had a happy marriage. She, she, she was not happy the fact that she was going to leave her husband and, um, less happy, I think, about the fact that she was not going to see her kids grow up because she was very close to her kids and she had two kids and, uh, she was very close to them. And I remember one of the most serious conversations that we had was sitting on the porch. My two kids, her two kids were bouncing around on a, on a, on a trampoline, trampoline. And she said, yeah, you know, I'm not going to ever see them ever at an age where they won't be trampolining, right? Like that, I'll, I'll just, I'll never see past this time. And she goes, that's really sad because she used to say to me, you know, two, three, four years before that, oh my God, my kids are so perfect. I want to like lock them up in a box. They don't grow. Right. And so and now she's like, you know, the only thing I want to do is be around to watch them grow and that's not going to happen. So, um, I, I mean, I, 
yeah, she was very brave and very courageous and very accepting uh, of her situation. Stayed very positive. It was she was never mired in this kind of like pity me thing or anything like that. Nothing like that. She's very brave, very courageous, a very uh, ag aggressively optimistic um, outlook about things. So that part of it was good for her, but she knew that it was a battle she couldn't win. And, and I think it just, it was just sad for her because she really loved her family. You know, I'm going to ask a question that might be a difficult one to answer yeah. or maybe insulting in some way, but did you ever envy the fact that she was leaving? No, I don't think so. And it's not that difficult question. I mean, it's a, it's a good question. Um, no, I, the, the, I'll tell you what's really poignant for me is that if there is a silver lining around terminal disease, the silver lining is that it's possible for you to reconcile certain emotions and relationships and kind of navigate some of the really difficult things about end of life issues that come up where, as opposed to somebody that let's say tragically dies in an accident where you can't, you know, she, she was able to get all of her last conversations, sometimes many times, this might be my last conversation with you conversations, which gave her the ability to talk. And I think, I don't think I envy it. I think what I admire is that she did not hide from the fact that she was going to die. She didn't live her life um, uh, because of that fact, but she kind of tapped out every relationship that she could she kind of tapped out every emotion that she could because she was just real about it and and i admire that because that's that's some serious courage and and i envy that because wouldn't it be nice to know that i can say whatever the f i want because you know what you don't like it that's your problem i'm dying it's up to me what the hell right so could you say that in life as well yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I probably tread a little bit lighter. I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, I don't want to upset the app cart too much sometimes. But um, but I I I do. You know, again, there's 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 you know there's a lot of people that would say there's no silver linings to losing somebody. Um, but I, I I think that you know there are some bright spots that you could look at, and one of those things that I that I envy or admire is that she was able to be very honest and real and authentic and connecting with the people that she had had in her life for many years. And her close friends were, were hurt and her family was really hurt by her, um, by her lot, you know, her leaving us. But um, yeah, nobody said like, Oh, I wish we would have got more time because they, the reality was they weren't going to get it and they maximized it while they had it, which was, which is a good thing. Which is a lesson we could all learn, of course. Right. Yeah. Whatever conversation Absolutely. we're putting off, whatever thing we are not willing to say out of fear or self-loathing or mm -hmm. whatever it is that life really is quite short. None of us know how long the runway is. Yeah. And even Susan, during people's journeys or potential, you know, life ending journey with cancer, especially is is it's really hard to have those difficult conversations, that emotional thing. Like it, it's easier for you to ask me as a stranger, you know, really hard questions, but you might not have asked that question to your best friend as you're going through it. Like, how do you feel about dying? Because I don't want to ask my friend how she feels about dying. I want to be here to support her. And I don't, what if she doesn't want to die? And I'm asking her to, uh, right. And we, we just filter ourselves because it's so hard. It's so hard to navigate these hard conversations. And I noticed that you know, while I was watching my sister go through this 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 experience, that people were good about talking about the tasks. How do I get my kids watched? How do I pick up my kids from school? How do I navigate healthcare? How do I get more time off of work? These kind of things are good about. But most people are not really good about talking about these really hard emotional things that you're really good at on your podcast with, right? But in your in, in everyday life, it's it's not easy to have these hard conversations. It's just not like, like, how do you start a hard conversation with somebody that you have some kind of, you know, 30 year dynamic with where having that hard conversation would just, it's just too hard. It's too big of a wall to climb. And so, you know, that's, 
that's kind of what I wanted to shine some light on is that, that like, how can we make starting those hard conversations, asking those tougher questions like you ask, how can we make that not so hard? I think the first step might be not, not worrying so much what the answer is, not hanging your hopes and dreams on whatever the answer is that regardless of what the person says back to you, knowing that that's their, that that's them, that Mm -hmm. it doesn't really have anything. It doesn't have to do with you. It has little to do with you at all. In fact, even if it seems like it's about you. Yeah. That's a very astute point. I mean, super astute because it's hard not to frame it around our perspective or about us. And you're right. It's not, it's not, it's not about us. And 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 I, I I've come in the last several years to understand this this concept of everybody's just living their life, and it's their life, and we're all just passerbyers in each other's lives, and so it's really not about us. But what what it is, we make it about us when we ask a stupid question. We make it about us when we when we look at somebody with puppy dog eyes because we think they need sympathy or something. That's making it about us, you know what. Um, even we can care about others and make it about us. I think what I wanted to do was to get inside people's heads to have an insight into that idea of what's it like to be them, right? Because we're living our lives. That's, that's making it about us. What's it like to be them? And, and it's like, oh my goodness, that's what people go through. Like, that's the kind of things that people are dealing with. Like, then it can maybe free you up a little bit to realize it's not about you. Like you don't ask questions because you want to look good. You ask questions because you want to learn and you want to listen, or you want to give somebody the ability to think or say something or learn something profound for even a minute, right? You don't ask the question because you're like, Oh, look at what a good question asker I am. Right. That, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Do you, thank you, by the way, that was a nice compliment. Do you uh, feel a spirituality or a closeness to something bigger than yourself and if you do where does that fit with you with the idea of dying especially given all the people you've talked with who are at end of life i still am on a path to learn the answer to those questions i don't think i know i just i just don't um several people i spoke to and wrote about in the book had stories that were very spiritual in nature. And a couple of them uh, asked me those type of questions ahead of time. And when I didn't give them answers that made them comfortable, they were like, well, I, I can't really tell you my story because you're not going to believe me. Or I can't tell you my story because, um, yeah, you're not going to take this thing about my story seriously. And I'm like, oh, well, just try me out. So, there are some stories that are unbelievably spiritual, like these can, cannot be coincidences, cannot be coincidence type stories. And they're unbelievably profound and moving. And they make you want to believe that there is some type of greater connectivity, something on whatever other side is the other side. And that we're all connected across time and humanity. And I, I, I kind of get, uh, I'm getting there, but I don't know that I know the answer. I just, I just don't know that I know the answer, but I do know. Can I tell you a super quick story? Please. Okay. So uh, this is in the book. I talk about this, but what I'm going to tell you is something that, that, that you can't make up. Okay. You literally couldn't make this up. If I, if I tried to elicit emotion out of someone, I couldn't make it up. Cause I'd have to be like the smartest guy in the entire world. So um, when my sister was near the end of her life, she called me up one day and she said, Hey, you know, um, I'm seeing ones everywhere. And I'm like, well, I don't know what you mean. She's like, well, like, like, you know, it's, you know, I look at the clock and it's one eleven, and I go, ah, it's two o'clock. She goes, no, 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 this is hear me out. I go, okay. She goes, you know, I, 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 uh, I, 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 I go on a bike ride and it's 11, I go 11 miles. And I go pick up Katie, my daughter, and she's, she's, she, they tell me that she's, she's in room 111. And, 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 and my, I look down at my heart rate and it's, and it's 111. And she goes, I don't know about these ones. It's like a guardian angel thing. Like maybe it's our dad. Cause, cause my dad died while they were on the phone together and he died at 111 in the afternoon while he was on the phone with my sister. And so she's oh my like, God. 
And she goes, and I don't know, like, I know it's probably stupid. We're not like really spiritual, like religious, whatever. But every time I see these ones, I think like, maybe that's dad, like looking out for us, looking out for me anyway. And I'm like, that's a really nice thought. Like, I don't know if it's BS or not, but I like the thought. So she dies and all of a sudden, like the kids, like next year, they go to my, I have twins and, and, and they both are, uh, they're in the same class. It's in room 111. And I'm like, what the hell? And at this time I'm, 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 I'm an athlete now and I'm doing races and I'm doing, you know, whatever. And I'll come home from a run and I'll have a run 11.1 miles, like not knowing it. Or we get out of the, uh, we come off the lake on the boat and we look at the car and it says it's 111 degrees out. And I'm like, what the hell? Right. So all these ones and I'm thinking, all right, that's kind of cool. So I get a phone call from an employee. It's about uh, 11 or 12 at night. I get a text from an employee. She goes, nice, nice thing with your sister text. And I'm like, what the hell does that mean? And so I, I I texted her back and I go, I'm not sure what you mean. She goes, yeah, that, that that's a really cute little, 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 little thing you, you pulled off. I'm, uh, that's awesome. And I, I go, I don't know what you mean. And she goes, you know, the stories with the ones. And I go, yeah, that's a true story. She goes, yeah, I know. She goes, where you finished that story. And I go, what? Now, if you ever written a book, you know that you write it, you rewrite it a hundred times. You send it to the publisher, you send it to your editor, the editor rewrites it a hundred times. You can send it back and forth. There's 30 different versions. Then you copyright it and it copy edit it and, and, and make sure the punctuation is correct. And then you send it to the layout artist and the layout guy's got to make sure that the paragraphs are on the right side of the page and the page numbers, blah, blah, blah. I flip open the book. And when I wrote about the story about June and the ones, it finished on page 111. Oh my god. I'm gosh. like, what the hell? I had no idea. And I picked up the phone. I called her. I'm like, what? She goes, You didn't know? I go, I had no idea. And hundreds and hundreds of people have read this book. Editors, publishers, pre-readers, blah, blah, blah. nobody ever noticed it. When final version, you know, however many books I've sold, nobody's ever said, Wow, I finished on page 111. Isn't that cute? I had no idea. So yeah, there's something going on out there. Because June's story about the ones finished on page 111. How is that? That's wild. Also, she was on the phone with your dad when he died. Yeah. That- that's, that's t- and they were very close. They were very, very close. That's- yeah. He just he just uh, died of a, uh, a massive stroke. Um, you know, just dropped the phone and she was like, oh, my goodness. So, wow. yeah. Wow. That's awesome. And she always remembered that it was at 111. So, so anyway, so I know there's long story, long story, long answer to your question. I know there's something out there. I don't know exactly what it is. And I, I don't in the book try to give answers or prescriptions or, you know, think this way or whatever. So if I did have an answer to that, I, I might not have written about it, but, you know. The thing about it, it doesn't matter. It, you don't have to know. None of us do. None of us have to know and not knowing is still okay. Yeah. There are some mysteries that get to stay mysteries. It doesn't make mm-hmm. us less than or worse people or better or whatever. That's mm-hmm. part yeah, of the thrill of being. It, it is a thrill. A thrill is a good word because like I'm thinking of this one guy. He's not, I wouldn't quite call him a friend, Susan, but I know him pretty well. And I know that he's not a BSer, right? He's not, he's not, he doesn't make stuff up. And he's certainly not a touchy feely emotional guy. Okay. And he, but he likes to tell the story. Uh, you know, I'm not a religious guy. I don't believe in the afterlife. It's like, that's just not my thing. He goes, and then I had a widow maker, you know, a massive heart attack. And I was on the, uh, I was dead for eight minutes and they resuscitated me. And he says, I just, I need to let you know, there is another side. We are literally, I saw it. We're all connected across time and humanity. If we're all connected by it, by an innumerable amount of strings every little thing is connected to every other living thing and it's just he goes i just know it like i saw it and i'm like okay well (laughs) i'm not gonna tell you you're crazy but you saw it he's not a guy that would 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 say that if he didn't mean it well it's interesting it's interesting that he believed that when he didn't believe in that beforehand yes it'd be one thing to believe in that wholeheartedly and then experience that 
but mm-hmm. to not believe it wholeheartedly and experience it. And that's yeah. something altogether. Yeah. And to not be preachy about it. He doesn't go out and wear it on his sleeve. It's just, if he gets asked a question, he'll, he'll answer it with like, I, I don't, I don't even, it's not even a remote possibility. It doesn't exist. We are all connected. It's all going to be okay. I'm definitely not afraid to die. In fact, I might at one point look forward to it. Yeah. Interesting. I love yeah, that. Cool. Right. Tell me about cycle of lives and how that came to be. So uh, near the end of June's life, uh, she said, uh, there's this a 24 hour relay for life going on in her honor and, and, and team, a team of people that came together and are going to do this relay for life for her. And she goes, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing well, but I'd like to be out there for the whole 24 hours. Put me on a, on a lounge chair and let me cheer people on. I said, Al, if you can do it, I'll, I'll run for the whole 24 hours. Cause at this time I've become an endurance athlete. I've done, you know, Ironmans and 24 hour runs and all that kind of stuff. So I said, I'll run for the whole 24 hours. She said, deal. And unfortunately she died two days before the event. So she couldn't, you know, go see them, but I did. And, and I ran the, the whole 24 hours and I just watched people and I, saw them interacting with each other. I saw them on really quiet, introspective laps, walking around the track, you know, and I just came up with this idea that everybody I saw had some kind of hesitancy, isolation, um, self-isolation, abandonment. Um, It was just a quiet, quieter, darker place when it was the emotional things on the table or that they were dealing with. You know, remembrance lap is in the dark. You know, it's like everything's kind of quiet and self-contained when it's on the emotional side. But when it came to education and, you know, resources, oh, we'll talk about that all day. And so I thought, hmm, what can we learn from that? And so I found, and it took me a while, but I found a ton of different people, all different ages, all different types of cancer all different perspectives. Like one was a non-college, just like I mentioned, a medical professional, a neonatal intensive care nurse, uh, you know, you name it, um, a, a survivor, loved one, had cancer one and done, had cancer five times in their adult life. I wanted just a wide range of people. And then I wanted to find people that were super fascinating, totally evocative with regard to that traumas that affected their lives. And so I wanted to say, Hey, I might be able to identify with your trauma in your childhood or young adulthood. Cause who doesn't have trauma? Um, and, and how did that trauma uh, affect your ability or more likely your inability to bring others into that quiet space when you're contemplating the emotional side. And so if I could say that point a is when you encountered cancer, either as a, uh, eighth grader on a field trip to a hospital where you said, I'm going to become a doctor or, you know, as an adult, when you got diagnosed with cancer for the first time, point, point A, that's point A. Point B is today. How are you able to or unable to navigate the emotional side of your trauma from point A to point B in relation to all the trauma that happened before? And I thought to myself, if I could understand a little, if I could have a little bit of insight into what you and I talked about earlier, that you never know what people are going through. Everybody's dealing with shit. They're living their lives, right? And we can't begin to understand what, what they're going through or what they have gone through. So if we can gain a little insight into that pre point A, then when they're going through that A to B journey, whatever it is, maybe we can have an, a way to relate to them a little bit better, ask better questions, listen better, just be there for them in a different way because we can understand, you know, when you ask a friend and you say, Hey, you know, Susan, I, you look a little down, like there's something going on. Uh, can you tell me? And you go, no, I'm fine. And I go, no, are you sure? And you go, yeah, no, look at David. I'm fine. Like, I'm, I'm good. It's just, a, ah, you know, it's just, I'm just dealing with a lot. I got a lot on my plate. I'm, I'm fine. I'm totally fine. Well, are you telling me that because you're fine? Or are you telling me that because maybe you don't want to bring me down? Or are you telling me that because you don't want to burden me? Or do you think that if you open up to me that I might abandon you? And I might say, gosh, dang it. Why'd you have to keep talking? Because I shouldn't ask you that stupid question because now you're giving me all your problems. I, there's all this stuff going on, right? And so I, I wanted to uh, give people and learn myself a little bit of insight into that. You know, How does trauma affect your ability to navigate those hard conversations? And, and so... Uh, I interviewed people for a couple of years 
got super, super deep into their stories. Every single one, multiple times along the process said, ah, I never really talked to anybody about it, but okay, I'll, I'll talk about X. And, and, and if people weren't able to go there with me, then they went to the wayside. Sometimes I wasn't a good enough question asker. Um, so, you know, it didn't work. Sometimes it was a long time for either them or me or whatever, but there were a number of stories that where they were just raw, dramatic, inspiring, moving, evocative, you know, just fascinating people who I was able to catch the essence of them and their experience and just to shine a light on what people go through. So they're just very dramatic stories, not so much dramatic in um, eliciting uh, you know, harsh emotion or depressing or anything like that, not dramatic like that, but just they're, they're very, really capturing the essence, I think, of people's trauma and how that affects their ability to navigate hard conversations while they're going through something like cancer. What'd that teach you about yourself? We got to do part two of the show because <laughs> yeah, I, I learned a lot. I mean, I really did learn a lot. Um, you know, I, I probably uh, came to a lot of conversations, even difficult ones, knowing stuff. And I had to unknow everything because I don't know anything. I have no idea what somebody's going through. I have no idea what the right thing to say is. I have no idea. I have no idea what they need. Right. And and I used to think like I do. Or that I would assume because you're a certain person with a certain dynamic that you never dealt with X or you don't know how to deal with X. That's wrong. So I, I kind of tried. I, I really do try every day to not assume to know what I think I know. Now, let me tell you another story. So when, when I um, when I was working at a major Wall Street firm, this was during the financial crisis, and it was a really, really rough patch. And we had a, a guy who was the last person you would ever think was in trouble. And he was in some whatever kind of trouble and jumped off the building. Young family, the whole thing. It's just absolutely tragic, completely tragic. And... Um, I went from uh, one advisor's office to the next advisor's office and I closed the door. I want to give them a, a safe space to talk about it because we didn't, couldn't get a grief counselor in there like till the next day. So I just walked around and talked to everyone. Every single person, Susan, every single one, people that I had known from going to their wedding or inviting them to a barbecue or watching their kids on vacation or whatever, every single one of them had a this close to them experience with suicide a parent a friend a childhood friend a family member something and i'm just like what the hell i couldn't even imagine people were dealing with that kind of thing on a regular basis i and then it made me think hell the, the next door when i grew up the, the dad um invited the family in on christmas day to open up presents and killed himself in front of them it's like what the hell and we, we I didn't know. Nobody knew that about me. I didn't know that about anybody else. Like, how would I know that people are dealing with that kind of trauma? And it's like, wow. So very long answer to your question. But that's one of the things I learned about myself is that you can't come to think that you know anything about anybody because you really don't. That's number one. Number two, don't, don't think to know what they need, which also gives you the ability to not be afraid to ask questions, even harsh ones, hard ones even private ones. Because if you ask it from a place of caring and you're doing it for the right reasons, then maybe potentially you could get the right answer, like what they need or what they're, what they don't need, but they just want to talk about or whatever. And understand and so, that whatever their answer is in that moment may change the next day or the next hour. Right. right. But if you could be there and, and be present, give people a safe space mm -hmm. and not put you, what you think they need or what you think they're feeling into into them because it's not about you right um so i so i learned that i really did learn that there's way more behind trite little sayings that you don't want to that i don't want to post on my little yellow stickies and 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 read why i'm brushing my teeth there's way more to those in real life than than we have any idea and almost every one of the book participants had something in their life that i would have rolled my eyes at if you would have told me, yeah, like this one woman. So in the beginning of her story, I knew a little bit about her life. This 
cancers and some other things, whatever. And I started talking to her and, and she was kind of distant and cold or whatever. And I, I said, so what's your, what's your outtake on life? And she goes, uh, you know, I just kind of do my best to get up out of bed, put my feet on the ground and go about my day. And I'm just like, uh, come on, man, give me more than that. You know, I'm rolling my eyes. I'm like, I mean, to myself, right. I'm just thinking, come on, I can put that on the yellow sticky, but that doesn't help me. So I'm talking to her and I realized that, holy crap. I mean, this woman has been through five different cancers in her adult life, five. Anything that they could take out, they took out every amount of chemo radiation, whatever. She even was going through a chemo regimen while she was caring for her dad who was dying of prostate cancer. I mean, unbelievable woman. That's not her story. Her story is right before her first diagnosis, she met a guy who she's still married to. And how was she able to love and be loved her whole life dealing with these medical issues and this burden? And he just he's so wonderful to her and she's so wonderful to him. And how could she learn how to love somebody and let that person love her in the face of potentially what was multiple terminal diagnoses. And then that's not even her story. She didn't meet Dave until shortly after she escaped one of the most harrowing four year, brutal, abusive relationships you could ever imagine. And I mean, bad like bad bad hospital you, you know whatever you want to put into it, you you put into it but bad and then i thought to myself so you, you do this four-year relationship you're in a relationship with the devil you get out of it you learn how to you learn how to open your heart and then you go through a lifetimes of journey with what you've gone through and near the end of our talk she goes you know so dave i don't know but every day i just get up i put my feet on the ground. I figure out how to go about my day. And I'm like, whoa, like there's so much behind that. And every person, you know, this, that doctor that I was telling you, one of the things he told me first, he goes, ah, he's, I don't have any problems. I love my life. I love, I, I love my life. That's what he told me a hundred times. He told me he loves his life. And finally I'm rolling my eyes going, come on, man, you don't love your life. Nobody loves their life that much. Right. I mean, get, give me something more. And I find out this is a guy who is a doctor digging in his couch for change to put gas in his car to pick up his paycheck. Of course he loves his life. I mean, it's just, there's just so deep. And so what, what I, what I really learned about the book is that people are fascinating and they've gone through a lot and they're dealing with a lot. And, you know, if, especially if people are forward thinking and and looking out the, the windshield forward instead of the rear view mirror if people are just trying to figure out how to get forward each day i mean it's just a wonderful gift to be able to take a quick look into their lives and interact with them um, on a real level about about how truly fascinating they are and that that's the thing i learned the most out of this book was everybody that i ran into that you could have a real moment with even if that moment was two years of conversations or a five minute real moment people are fascinating and uh um, I didn't know that I really believed that before I embarked on this project. I thought there were fascinating people, but I didn't think all people were fascinating. I kind of believe that now. Yeah. Everyone is a deep well. Yeah. Yeah. Are you afraid to die? I don't think so. I don't think I'm afraid of it. I, I think that uh, I'm not looking forward to it. Um, I, I you know, have too much to do in life that I hope it doesn't happen for a long time. Um, and hopefully by then I'll figure out a way to make it something I look forward to, right. It's, it's going to happen. So yeah, I, 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 you know, one of the uh, people I met during this project said the human brain is not wired to be able to understand its own mortality. Even doctors who deal with death all the time. Um, uh, this was an oncologist and she told me, she said, um, hell, half, uh, the reason that, that half the oncologists become oncologists because they want good karma because they're afraid to die. Mm. And I'm like, wow, they're afraid to die. They're afraid they're going to get cancer or die. So they become oncologists for the karma. And I'm like, wow, that's interesting. We can't, we can wrap our brains around the fact that other people die, but we can't wrap our brains around the fact that we, that we're going to die. And, and that's an interesting thing. So I think people are afraid of death. I don't know if they're afraid to die. I don't know if we can we can truly understand that concept. It is a weird one to wrap your head around, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
How might people find you, David? Uh, you could be in the middle of the desert and see some some stupid guy running in 115 degree heat down the highway. That'd be me. That They can find me there. No, I'm kidding. Um, they could find me there. But uh, on cycleoflives.org. So um, all the proceeds from the book go to help the uh, cancer-focused charities and other charities that were chosen by the book participants. And so that's listed in the book. It's listed on the on the website, but cycleoflives.org. And I do public speaking. I do expressive writing workshops, um, uh, really wonderful workshops. They're, they're amazing. And uh, I try to help people whenever I can. Uh, a lot of information there. And uh, obviously books are wherever books are sold, which I think isn't everything sold on Amazon. So yeah, uh, there you go. I think so. <laughs> David, this has really been wonderful. I appreciate you coming on the show and being so candid about your feelings around it all and your stories. I think they're important. I think the more we tell these stories, we give permission for other people to feel their feelings and tell their own stories. And it puts your own life in perspective to realize the true depth of the thought of you never know what people have dealt with or what they're dealing with. And when somebody is being closed off, maybe that's because they've been abandoned at the most desperate times in their lives and they don't know how to open up anymore rather than they're just a jerk. Right. I mean, there's so much more. And so, um, yeah, thank you for giving people a forum. You're, you're a great interviewer and, Thanks. you know, hopefully you bring content that you're proud of. I think you are proud of and your, your audience does. And so thank you for providing this, this space for people. Thanks, David. And thank yeah. you for listening, everybody. Bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.